preacher uh, walking down the street one day, and he was approached by a very shabbily dressed, unshaven, downtrodden looking guy who was kind of shuffling along. His clothes were dirty, and, and he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he walked up to the preacher and asked him if he could give him a couple of dollars for something to eat. preacher took $10 out of his wallet, and he said, now, if I give you this money, he said, you wouldn't use it to buy fishing lures, would you? I said, you nuts? Man, I haven't fished in so long, I can't remember. In fact, he said, I, I sold all my fishing equipment, I had to buy whiskey. Well, he said, if I give you this $10, you wouldn't use it to pay green fees at a golf course, would you? He said, no, I know you're nuts. He said, look at me. Do I look like a guy that plays golf? The preacher said, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to give you this $10. I'm going to take you home with me. And, and my wife is going to fix you an incredibly wonderful meal at our house. This guy said, don't you think your wife would be a little upset if you brought a guy like me home? He said, well, she may be. But what's really important is, I want her to see what a man looks like when he quits fishing and playing golf. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, I, I just want to remind you that this is a letter written to a congregation at Philippi. And one Sunday morning, somebody got up and said, we received a letter from the Apostle Paul this week. And it was read out loud to the congregation. I just, I, it just fascinates me how it must have been to actually hear it for the first time. We got a letter from the Apostle Paul this week. And I say that to you because there's a sense in which we ought to feel the same way when we read these books, that, that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the congregation here in Clinton, Oklahoma. Watch out for those dogs, Paul says. Those men who do evil. Those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. Now, Paul's talking about the Judaizing teachers that were insisting that a man had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says, actually, we are, we are the circumcision. We who worship God... We who worship by the Spirit of God. How about that? We, congregation in Philippi, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What do you think it means to worship in the Spirit of God? you have any idea about what that means? Do you think you ever did that? Would you know it if you had done it? It's right here in the Bible. He says that these Christians at Philippi worship by the Spirit of God. It must be pretty important or it wouldn't be in the Bible. 
And, and they must have been doing it because Paul says they've been doing it. And I assume that the Christians in the congregation at Philippi were not the only Christians in the world who were doing that. And I want to talk to you tonight about the Holy Spirit and worship. I've been preaching for 57 years. And until about two years ago, I never preached a sermon on this idea. Never. I don't know that I ever paid that much attention to it although I've read the book of Philippians at least 300 times. But this never jumped off the page. And and I wonder how many of you have read the book of Philippians how many times, and you never stopped and said, what in the world does that mean? What is that about? In Michigan, where I grew up, all carbonated beverages were called pop. In some places, they called it Coke, even if it wasn't. But we always called it pop. And pop was only a nickel. I know that's hard to believe now. No, and really, pop was a nickel. I mean, you could buy five bottles of pop for a quarter, in case you're not too high on math. Well, there was this Standard Oil gas station at the corner of 18 Mile Road and Rochester Road, owned by a guy whose name was Marshall Bruder, which isn't really too important, unless you're into that sort of thing. Well, Marshall Bruder sold candy out of a glass case, and he had a red pop machine, that had Coca-Cola written in white cursive letters on the side of it. This is one of those old kind. Some of you may have seen one of these, but most of you never did. It was one of the old kind of pop machines where they had ice down in the bottom and water on top of that. And those bottles of pop sat right down in that ice water, which is what made them cold, which is, if you're a little slow on the uptake, And it also made them desirable. I mean, you don't ever see a sign that says, get your room temperature pop right here. On real hot days in the summertime, I used to go to Marshall Bruder's with Tommy and Freddie Peterson. We went to Marshall Bruder's Standard Oil gas station. And again, I realize how this dates me. But if you never had this experience, you don't know how wonderful and how delicious it is. See, we went barefoot all summer because you didn't want to wear your shoes out. Summertime, shoes are expensive. So we, we went barefoot all summer long. Well, when you went into Marshall Bruder's gas station, especially in the garage part, those smooth concrete floors were just cool as they could be. And we used to just stand there and scrunch our toes it was, you know, it's an amazing feeling. And I, you know, if you never had it, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But it was a, a wonderful thing. I mean, it was exciting. I know it doesn't sound that way, but it was. And then we'd go over to the pop machine and open the lid, and we'd stick our arms down in that ice cold water as far as we could get them. Oh, oh you talk about a thrill. I mean, it's good. Every time I opened that lid, I would think about how wonderful it would be to say, give me a pop, like my dad or some of the other grown-ups that came into Marshall Bruder's. Give me a pop. I I thought that's about the neatest saying I ever heard. I used to practice saying it so I could say it like an adult if I ever got the chance. I'd walk around the house saying, give me a pop. My mother would say, what would you say? I said, forget it. I didn't say anything. Anyway... But I, I never did. 
say that because I never had a nickel. They had uh, Coca-Cola, of course, but they also had RC Cola, had Fago root beer, Byerly's grape, and Nesbitt's orange. And that's what I wanted, a Nesbitt's orange. If Mr. Bruder had said, what kind of pop? I'd have said a Nesbitt's orange. But like I said, I never had a nickel. Things grow in a child's mind, and they got out of proportion. It led me to do something unthinkable. We, uh, we attended this real small congregation in Hazel Park, Michigan. We met in a Masonic Lodge Hall. My dad led to sing, and Brother Utley was the preacher. I really liked to go there. Brother Utley was kind of a soft-spoken man, and he never scared me. He wasn't what we call a pulpit pounder kind of guy. Every Sunday after communion, they took up the collection. It was a little confusing to me because every time they had that communion talk, you know, before they had the communion, and then they would go down to the contribution, they'd always said, somebody always said it's separate and apart from the communion, but even a child could see it wasn't. Well, the, the, the money went into these wicker baskets that had the green velvet bottoms in them. I figured out for myself the reason those had those green velvet bottoms in it is that you wouldn't be embarrassed if you put change in there. So, when it was all collected, they put the money, the baskets with the money under the... Couldn't do it here. A, there was a bench underneath the communion table right there, and they put those baskets down there on that bench. I don't know just how or when the idea seized me, but one Sunday after church, while everybody was outside visiting because it was so hot inside, I went back inside. I walked right up to the communion table. I leaned over. I took a nickel out of the collection plate. I thought God wouldn't mind losing a lousy nickel for a bottle of pop. I mean, what's a nickel to God? Now, it's important that you understand, I could have taken anything. I could have taken a $5 bill, but I didn't want a $5 bill. I wanted a nickel. I wanted it so bad, I risked going to hell to get it. Nobody ever knew. Next day, Tommy and Freddie and I went down to Marshall Bruder's, went in there, and when I tried to say, give me a pop, it wouldn't come out. You ever have that experience? You... <laughs> Gee, 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 I couldn't say it. So, I put that nickel in my pocket. That night, when I went to bed, I, I put it in a shoe under my bed. But it really bothered me. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I couldn't go to sleep. I thought, you know, that nickel is right under my bed. In fact, it's actually right under my head. And if God comes to get His nickel, He may not reach under the bed. He may reach through the bed and take my head off. So I got up and moved the shoe over by the wall. I always prayed before I went to sleep, but that nickel kept me from praying my normal prayer. I'd end up saying, God, if you'll just wait till Sunday, I promise I'll put it back. I had terrible dreams God would speak to me in my dreams in a very loud voice, and I'd hear this voice saying, Where is my nickel? I want my nickel. And God was so real to me. He, God was incredibly, practically real to me. And I remembered that this was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This was the God that demanded that Achan be killed for stealing some stuff. This was the God who smashed the wall of Jericho. This was the God who brought a flood on the whole earth. But He was also the God who had saved David from Goliath and Daniel from the lion's den. And I didn't know exactly where I stood with God. But I did understand that I had done a terrible thing. I had committed a sin beyond reckoning. I had stolen money right out of God's pocket. And I was terrified. 
Sunday finally came. When we got to church, I couldn't sing. It didn't seem right. I didn't pay any attention to what Brother Utley said. All I could think about was I had that nickel in my pocket, and here I was in the presence of God. And all I could think of was, Brother Utley is going to stop preaching in any moment, and he's going to say, we have a thief in our midst. And every eye would look toward me because they would know it was me. And they'd take me outside and stone me to death. My dad was leading singing. I was sitting in the second row from the front next to my mother. My plan was to put the nickel back in the collection plate when it came by, but when it came by, there wasn't anything else in it. So I couldn't put it in there without being detected. After church, everybody went outside just like the week before. I had to do something. I knew I wasn't going to live another week with that nickel in my possession. So I went back into the church building, and I crept very slowly and very carefully down the aisle like a Jew approaching the Ark of the Covenant. I approached the communion table. I was trembling. I was trembling from head to foot. I cannot tell you how scared I was. And I bent over, and I put that nickel back in the collection plate, and I said, Dear God, please forgive me for stealing your nickel. And I backed out of the building as quick as I could. When I got outside, I can't tell you how happy I felt. I, I felt so good. I felt forgiven. God... God had graciously allowed me to come back into His presence. I felt so good, I sang church songs in the back seat of the car on the way home. And that night I prayed my old prayers again, and I slept without fear. This is what I want you to hear. Somewhere between my childhood and my adulthood, I believe I lost some of that sense of the presence of God. Now, I'm saying something important to you. I believe I lost some of that awe, some of that reverence, some of that fear that I felt because I was in the presence of God. I really believed that God was there. I, I honestly... I thought he was sitting on the seat right next to me. Do you believe that God is concerned with the nickels that you steal from him? Do you ever come in here trembling? Do you ever come in here with a sense of awe and reverence? Because you're in the presence of God. I suspect strongly that if you thought that God was sitting on the pew next to you, you probably wouldn't be talking to people around you about the things you talk about when you come in here. You need to think about that. And so this is my prayer. Father... Renew my sense of Your divine presence. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation. Help me to understand my sinfulness, my unworthiness. May I never again take for granted the grace You have bestowed upon me in the cross of Jesus. May I be so overwhelmed by Your faithfulness, by Your grace, that I sing with gladness Your praises and shout the majesty of Your name. May Your presence be so real that I fall to my knees and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. John tells us, John chapter 4, 
that very interesting conversation between Jesus and that Samaritan woman, fascinating thing. That this incredibly all-encompassing teaching is given to an audience of one person, and she's a Samaritan woman. Now, I, I, I just get goosebumps when I think about that. I don't know what that says to you. But what an, what an incredible thing this is. The most far-reaching teaching on the nature of Christian worship given by our Lord is given to a Samaritan woman. Most of us know that woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you know, you, you can actually see Mount Gerizim from Jacob's well. And that was the home of Samaritan worship. When, when she says, our fathers worshipped, she's pointing, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Listen to this. When neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Must worship what? In spirit and in truth. Now, we think we've got a handle on the truth part. And I think we've done pretty well with it. But I don't think we've done much with the worship in spirit part. What does that mean? Jesus said, that's the kind of people that God wants to worship Him. Another interesting thing about this is that Jesus said... The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will not worship God on that mountain or in Jerusalem. I'm sure you remember, that's where the church began, was in Jerusalem. So what is Jesus saying? The church is going to start in Jerusalem. It is the main headquarters. They worship, all of the first early Christians worshiped right there in Jerusalem. But Jesus says worship's not going to take place in Jerusalem. So what does He mean? He means that worship is not confined to a geographic location. Worship is not in a place. Worship is in your heart. And that's all. We do not worship brothers and sisters, simply by being in a place where people are worshiping. We worship when we are worshiping from the inside out. Worship is internal acknowledgement. It is internal prostration. It is internal recognition of God who He is, the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe, as the Lord of our lives. Now, listen carefully to me. That internal attitude of worship, that spirit of worship, is expressed externally in various forms. Okay? We use various forms as expression of what is in us. Our religious traditions, I think, have programmed us to think of worship exclusively in terms of what happens here in this building. Further, we have begun to think of worship exclusively 
in terms of the forms. It is impossible to confine the idea of worshiping by the Spirit of God to those parameters. Worship is not limited to what takes place in this building. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not just something we do here. I think we err from the truth of the gospel when we ignore the biblical emphasis on personal holiness and personal sanctification. That means that we have a daily awareness, a daily consciousness of our relationship with God, and we find various ways of expressing that. Whatever form that expression takes becomes our worship. There is such a thing as corporate worship. It's very biblical. There's a time and a place where those who desire to worship come together in order to enhance and to broaden, to encourage one another by lifting a corporate voice before the throne of God. This worship is expressed, it is even enhanced by singing and praying and giving and communing and the ministry of the Word. God has specified these forms. We assume that these are the forms that He finds most pleasing. This corporate worship is no more, no less, than the collective offering of the internal desires of individual worshipers. But again, we do not worship simply by being here. We do not worship even by simply participating in the forms. And although... Christian worship is by its very nature participatory. In Christian worship, there is no audience. We are all worshipers. Now, I'm saying something important to you. It's a, it's a concept that I think is... A, there is no audience here. We are all participating together in the worship of God. We only worship when the form is the expression of what is in our hearts. And although the expression is critically important, we must not mistake the expression for the worship. We must not mistake the expression for the worship itself. Remember, you have to worship in spirit. Those who worship me must worship in spirit, not in form. They have to worship in spirit. One of the purposes of corporate worship is to encourage and enhance one another's participation. I looked at this verse this morning, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says that the presentation of our bodies as living sacrifices constitutes spiritual worship. That presentation is not simply the presence of our physical bodies at the assembly. It is the way we conduct our lives. It is the way we conduct our everyday lives. All of the things that we do have to be done, the Bible says, in the name of the Lord. And so all of the things that we do are expressions of our acknowledgement, our worship of God. 
since the spirit of worship is generated internally, it is obvious that the Holy Spirit who indwells us can provide the stimulus that creates the desire to worship. I know that you're bound to have had the experience of leaving here, and whether you said it or not, you felt like it just didn't happen. We feel like it just didn't happen today for whatever reason. And so people, I hear people say to me, you know, I just couldn't get into it today. I've had that experience. And I, maybe I had a lot of other things on my mind. So I, although I was singing those words to the song, I wasn't paying any attention to them. I wasn't expressing a spirit of worship in them. I was just going through the ritual. When I was in high school, I sang in the a cappella choir. And there were about 80 kids in the choir. We had an incredibly good choir. We actually went to Chicago and competed with a choir from a high school, I think it was from Iowa, as the best a cappella choir in the United States. We sang a song called Go to Dark Gethsemane. Go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with Him one bitter hour. It was a beautiful song. And it was a Christian emphasis in it. And when I sang that song in the auditorium of Royal Oak Dondero High School, I was worshiping. But I dare say there were 65 kids who were singing the same notes, saying the same words, who were not worshiping God. They were just singing a beautiful song. That's all. And so I... I'm trying to help us to see what the nature of Christian worship is. It is an internal, it's something that comes internally, but is expressed externally in one form or another. The same thing is true with, with even with communion. You know, I have on occasion not participated in communion. Just because I, I wasn't into it. My mind was filled with so many things that had nothing to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that I couldn't get focused on it. John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So what does it mean to be in the Spirit? What does that mean? It means that John had an attitude, an internal attitude of reverence and praise and the worship of God. That is, his heart and soul and mind were focused on and attuned to the holiness of God. In Isaiah, chapter 6, we read about an experience that Isaiah had. He was all alone. He was not in a corporate worship service. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were the seraphs. 
each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah says, I'm a sinner, and I live among a people who are sinners. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is obviously a personal worship experience. No one else saw that. No one else saw what Isaiah saw. No one else heard God speak. But here is a, a personal worship experience. A spiritual experience. We worship in the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual overtones to our songs. They're just songs to many. However well written, however beautiful they are, however moving, they're just beautiful songs. But to us, they're more than that. They're the expression of what is in us. They're expression of how we feel. They're an expression of our love and our devotion to God. And that is generated internally. Our prayers in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with the Spirit. And I will sing with my mind also. Here is the essential understanding of worship in spirit and truth. Paul says, I'm going to sing with my spirit. I'm going to sing with my mind. I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm going to pray with my mind. And so it is the combination of those things that amounts to spiritual worship. Our prayers are intended to be spiritually motivated outpourings. They're not just noble sentiments. They're not just beautifully worded sentiments. These are things that come out of us internally. And we use that to express ourselves, our feelings for God. Our communion is a spiritually motivated, spiritual experience. It's not just a form. It's not just a ritual. Our fellowship is not just people of goodwill who by their choice have banded together in a common cause. We're not a lion's club. We're not a group of masons. We're not the, the local... Department of uh, whatever it calls it. Help me out here. Yes, Chamber of Commerce. Thank you. It's not because I'm old. I forgot things when I was 17 too. We are a people who have been called here. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? We have been called here. by a common cause, by a common God, a common Savior, and a common Spirit. And so we don't come here just as a matter of duty. We don't come here just because if I don't come, somebody will miss me and then they'll start calling me. And I don't want to go through that, so I'll just attend. We are called to come here by the Spirit of God to worship God.
our exhortation, our ministry of the Word. And I just want to say just a word about that. Because I said to you that worship is by its very nature participatory. Okay? We're all supposed to be participating in the worship of God. And sometimes, when the sermon's going on, we don't think of ourselves as participating. But if you're with me, you are. You understand what I'm saying to you? If you're focused on not John, but on the words, on the message, you are participating in the ministry of the Word. No, it's a very important concept. You are not the audience. You are participating in this. And that's why the nodding of the head or the amen or that is extremely important because it's your participation. It's your way of responding, of saying, that's right, I'm there. Yes. Our lessons are not just good advice from a good book. They are life-changing truth from God. It is the Holy Spirit who creates those longings within us, an insatiable desire to reach out for God, to find some way of expressing our love, our gratitude to our Creator, to our Savior, I want, I want to express to him how I feel about him. Some of you married folks, I can only say that I, I identify with this because there have been times when I wanted to tell my wife how I felt about her. And I couldn't find the exact right words. And I, I wanted to say, if you just knew what was going on inside of me, I haven't got the right words. I mean, if I tell you I love you, it, just, it sounds trite almost. But I do. And I want to find some way of helping you to understand my love for you. The same thing is true with God And that's why the first commandment is the first commandment, church. Because until you get the first commandment right, you can't get anything right. Don't you see that? There's no point in doing six, seven, eight, nine, and ten until you get number one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Well, you don't actually love Him by saying, I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Any more than you really tell your wife that you love her by saying, I love you. You have to express that somehow. So you bring her flowers. I hope you do. And so you do other nice things. And you tell her how nice she looks. And you tell her what she means to you. And you sing her love songs. Well, maybe some of you shouldn't try that. (laughs) But don't you know, don't, don't you ladies, I know you appreciate that. It's so easy to say I love you. But it's an altogether different thing to express your love in the things that you do. It means everything. You know, you feel the same way. You feel the same way when your wife says, you know, I I, I love you. Well, what does that mean? When she expresses that by doing loving things. I just say that to you so you'll understand how God feels. God has feelings. He wants to be loved. 
He wants us to be grateful. He wants us to see Him for all that He is. And so we sing, On Zion's glorious summit stood a numerous host redeemed by blood. They hymned their King in strange divine. I heard the song and I strove to join. Oh, John says, I wanted to participate. I wanted to express to God in this song. I heard that song. They hymned their King in strange divine. Oh, John says, and I wanted to join in. And I'm just saying that that's the same attitude you ought to have towards your singing here. You need to be hymning your king in strains divine. And you should want to join in and express your love. And so that's why we say amen at the end of a prayer, you know. It's our way of saying that's how I feel too. It's an expression. We say amen. That's how I feel. Well, I, I'm done. The Holy Spirit creates an insatiable desire, a longing within us that is never completely fulfilled to acknowledge God, to reach out to God, and to tell Him how much we love Him through the way we express ourselves to Him by doing loving things. In Romans 8, verse 15, Paul writes, We have received a spirit, we have received this, a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We have received a spirit of adoption. Now hang on to that. You have all received a spirit of adoption. And it is by that... No, this is right in the Bible. It is by that Spirit that we express ourselves to God. It's right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Just read it for yourself. That is the essence of worship. No matter what form it takes, this is recognition and submission and acknowledgement. The little story I told you this morning about giving the guy the $10 bill in Town Creek, it's an act of worship. I am acknowledging God. I am giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing. And I'm telling Him, this is not from me. This is a gift to you from God. And so I'm acknowledging God in the things I do. Well, we're going to stand and sing a song. And, uh, and, and this is the end. You know, we plan these things so far in advance and they take a long time coming, but they're sure over in a hurry, aren't they? I, I hate to leave. I really do. No, I really mean it. I hate to leave. You're a good bunch. I noticed many of you who are actually hungry and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You listen and you're paying attention and you're soaking it in. Praise God for that. You don't know what it means to me. No, you really don't know what it means to to think that somebody's really listening. I'm sure Pat feels this way, but there are times when you preach and you get through 
and you think, I don't think they heard a word I said. No, it, it's really, it's ha- it happens. And there's sometimes when I get through and I think, I'm glad they didn't hear a word I said. That was the lousiest sermon I've ever heard in my life. No, you, you, do, you just feel like a complete failure. You do. You feel so inadequate. You, you're trying to talk to people about God. And here you are, this little insignificant little tiny person trying to talk about God. And we not only feel inadequate, you see, we are. We're hopelessly inadequate. We do the best we can. And you do the best we can. And we express ourselves to God. Let's pray together. Well, Holy Father, um, this is the last uh, lesson. And tomorrow morning I'll leave Clinton, Oklahoma. Drive to Oklahoma City and fly to Dallas, fly to Huntsville. But I, I want these precious people here to know that I will leave a piece of myself in Clinton, Oklahoma. I really will. And for several days to come, I will think about this congregation of your people and how they are responding and acknowledging and claiming the gift of the Holy Spirit in all of the ways that I have tried to at least challenge them with certain ideas. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you. It's been good. It's been a good experience. And they have encouraged me marvelously. I'm so grateful. May we all, may we all, with one heart, one mind, one soul, feel that call to come together as the family of your people to worship you, to serve you, to encourage, to edify, and to uplift one another. May the praise that we offer up to you the expression of our worship bring you joy and be acceptable. In Jesus' name, amen.